0: Hi, Dawn. Welcome back to Marketing for the Business Curious.
1: Thanks, Alex. It's good to be back. Let's have a look at what we can do this week.
0: Last week, we talked about BlackBerry, and we had two plans to save their long dead skin. Uh, Let's see. One of them was to be the Samsung of the phone world for Samsung and just kind of make phones that work for everyone. And the other was to try and have a very narrow group and just aim their product at business people only. And this reminded me of the old cliche that you can please some of the people all of the time or all of the people some of the time, but you can't please all of the people all of the time. Is that true, Dawn? You're a marketing practitioner. Is that really the case?
1: I think it is. I think it's really difficult to please everybody all the time. There's always going to be somebody that doesn't like your product or that doesn't need your product or doesn't want your product. And frankly, there's no point wasting energy, resources, money, time, people trying to appeal to those people that just aren't appropriate. So I think it's always worth once you've identified what that core benefit is, it's always worth then looking at who's going to be the target market for your product. What segment of the population are you going to appeal to? right
0: and even more so the, the typical marketing thought is usually if you try and aim your product at lots and lots of people you end up pleasing nobody very much you know nobody enough and there'll be someone else who will come along and will target them more specifically and make them happier and then they will win away your market share and so even if you can be sort of okay for everybody that's not good enough you're better off being really really good for some people and that's how you win a night in a competitive marketplace where other people are trying to steal your customers although apple seem pretty hell-bent on trying to go the other way and just being one product for everybody apple certainly isn't trying to do what other companies are which is making you know a, a tablet for kids and a tablet for students and then a tablet for at work and a tablet for retired people
1: You're right. They don't differentiate their products and their target market is quite wide. But I would argue it's not for everybody. They might only have one product and they might say this is the one product and this suits everybody. But what they're saying is this is the one product that suits our cohort of Apple users. So it doesn't suit everybody. If you look at their advertising and their marketing, they're quite precise about the demographic that they target age group, the lifestyle, all of those things are very consistent, and it's quite a small group. You know, it's not aimed at business people, with the exception of graphic designers, for instance. It's not aimed at your grandma. It's not aimed at big corporates. You can pick out certain demographics that they think they appeal to. Tends to be younger, tends to be very hip, tends to be very trendy, tends to be people with more disposable income. So I would argue that even though they only have one product in a you know, rather than a range of products in whichever field they're in, it's still segmented.
0: Yeah, although ironically, uh, my mother-in-law, we we got her an iPhone years ago, and she loves it because it's easy to use. Uh...
1: But that's the thing. You got her an iPhone. She didn't. So who's the target market there? I would say it's you. It's not her. They've still segmented their audience. It's quite a big segment. And they haven't then broken that down and sub-segmented it or divided it into smaller audiences but they're still segmented.
0: So if even Apple is doing it how do we go about doing that if you're thinking I've just launched my little product or my big product, or my my genius soon to be a unicorn trillion dollar company product <laughs> but I need to do this segmentation business where do you even start on
1: The first thing you need to understand is your core benefit. And we talked about that quite a bit last week. But then you need to understand who that core benefit is going to appeal to. And think about the type of person that's going to use your product. And there's several dimensions that you can look at there. You know, the marketing textbooks are full of them. There's quite a big long list. So you could look at demographics. Demographics is quite wide. Demographics covers things like what age group, what gender, what generation, All of those kind of things. You know, what kind of life do people have? Have they got money? Have they not got money? What kind of jobs might they have? So there's that whole cluster of demographic stuff. So Apple might say, OK, our segmentation is people under the age of 45. We're not segmenting by gender, but they're probably in a professional occupation. They probably got disposable income. That would probably sum up Apple's segment. It's quite broad, but it's still a segment.
0: Right. And so Apple will bleed heavily from straight demographics, like, you know, people in their 20s and 30s who have this kind of a job. And they start bleeding over into what we would call more psychographic, so more lifestyle. So I am independent and urban and in a creative profession and think of myself as someone who is not just following the crowd. Although, I mean, you, you could argue they've perhaps been a, a victim of their own success where they've become so dominant in the phone market that they're often seen as just the default phone that everyone has now and they've lost a little bit of that psychographic profile that they used to very very strongly have and i think most companies would make that trade-off right you're you're winning so much that my segmentation's got blurred although you, you can get in trouble if you lose your segmentation too much
1: well let's have a look at a company that are struggling with their segmentation and where they've been successful so I remember having a conversation with you about Harley, Harley Davidson, the motorcycle manufacturer. You know, they've got a really clear segment of people that they appeal to.
0: Marketers love to study Harley because they have this really defined lifestyle of being this rebel, lone wolf, motorcycler who drives around in a, a pack of bikers and go on on collective rides together. And they've built up this huge infrastructure of a Harley owners group where you don't just buy a Harley and put it in your garage you have to go on rides and then you move up through the leadership of this group and you can become a leader of your local Harley owner group and there's there's a whole set of clothing and a lifestyle and a look that's associated with it you don't ride your Harley Davidson to your work as a, an accountant and park it in the garage it just wouldn't fit with the Harley vibe but the reason we've been thinking about Harley recently is I I sent a bunch of my brilliant master students to go and think about Harley because it, it turns out that one of the companies that, that tracks brand equity every year has rated Harley's brand equity as slipping and slipping and slipping over the past few years. So I, I sent a bunch of my students to go and think about it. I can't credit them all by name because uh, privacy laws would be broken and I would get in a lot of legal trouble. But if you're listening and you're one of those students, you know who you are and thank you. One of the things that they, they started to find when they looked at why it was slipping is that while well, Harley has this very strong ethos, it's in an aging demographic group. Their ridership is in their 50s and often 60s, and they're about to start getting to the age when they can't go riding around on bikes as much anymore. And they're having a very hard time appealing to young people. Young people see them as sort of like an old white guy with often very, in American terms, conservative politics, whereas young people see themselves as more diverse, and that is quite incompatible with the Harley ethos. And so there's a bunch of things that are connected to that. So, for instance, Harley motorcycles are quite expensive, and that doesn't work for young people who don't have a, a ton of income. And, in gener- you know, the millennial generation and Generation Z, they have a hard time scraping lots of money together into a really, really expensive motorcycle that's heavy and that they can't ride through their city to work it just doesn't work at all for them so Harley have on the one hand an incredibly well-defined lifestyle that, an iconic brand and some of my students would suggest oh, oh well they should start appealing to young people now and make electric bikes with uh, no emissions that are very light uh, that you can keep in your small garage and it's not clear that Harley can do that that's not who Harley is
1: I think Harley would find that really difficult to make that change. So, you know, all of those middle-aged white men that have got very conservative views, they're going to start getting really upset with Harley if Harley start doing lightweight electric bikes and being the, you know, the good guy when they've always seen Harley as a rebel. And that's what they've bought into. So um, how might be a different way to make that shift, though? How do you think they might do that? Well, ironically, they're actually trying.
0: So they actually do have some lighter city bikes. They actually have an electric bike. They've got a little skateboard. They're actually trying to do it, but it's not clear that their base likes this, and it's not clear that younger people are picking up on it. So, I mean, the sort of the irony is their greatest strength is this subculture that they epitomize that they're iconic for, but in a very polarized era, that subculture is seen as old and white and reactionary there's a lot of Harley riders that are just flat out, loudly pro-Trump, and Trump himself leans into that. And so on the one hand, that's a good thing because a good enemy makes your, your people more loyal, but it also risks this, this black sheep effect Like nobody is more hated than the insider who's too nice to outsiders. So that if Harley is too nice to people that these Trump voters hate, then they've betrayed their riders and betrayals are, are not forgiven lightly. So how do you build a broader rider base when your key group is belligerently opposed? So that side. <laughs> so is
1: it, do you think there's something in their segmentation, in that, that core group, that they could translate into another group? So this idea of Harley's all about being independent, it's about being a rebel, it's about freedom, those things you could probably take and translate.
0: Ironically, the other thing about Harley is it's about being a rebel, but it's also about being part of a tribe and traveling around in a pack. You don't ride your Harley around necessarily on your own. You ride with a bunch of Harley riders and this community is also a a part of it. And I am not one of the young people, but maybe we could, we will say this and young people will shout at us and tell us we've got it all wrong. It it seems like those are values that on their own resonate with young people. They really are about like friends and traveling and having some freedom and not being too controlled, but they're also cost conscious. the question is, is there a version of this Harley freedom, but socializing in a pack that you could pack in a way that would make sense and would resonate to them? And so what my thought is, what resonates with them is holiday. It's break, it's going on, in escape. Maybe doing it in affordable and an eco-friendly ways, so really heavy and expensive motorcycles aren't going to work here but they mm-hmm. can try and have their smaller electric bikes and find a way to communicate about friends going on holiday in groups. There's even apparently hotels that have started doing this. They've started selling, instead of like you know one room or two rooms at a time, they're starting to sell group accommodations to packs of people who are going on holiday together as a group of friends. And so, you know, you get slightly cheaper accommodation. I guess it's sort of like a youth hostel concept. So, If they did their consumer insight research and they got some really good creative people who are good at packaging messages, maybe this is what they want to sell is the escape from the world, the affordable, eco-friendly, running with a pack of your friends and and going where the wind blows you and traveling around. Maybe you, you could make that work for young people too. And the key is you're still using your same core benefits of freedom and community, but you're packaging it up to apply in a way that works for a different segment. It's quite difficult to appeal to two different groups at the same time, but there are some ways of finessing that a little bit. So one is you can have a a sub-brand. So you can have Harley Classic, which is the big, heavy, loud, made in America. And, And one of their issues, by the way, is that they shifted production out of America to cut costs so the motorcycles wouldn't have to be expensive and then a bunch of their conservative reactionary American customers got really enraged by this and said no the reason I buy America Harley is because it's American and so I'll buy something else if you're going to make it elsewhere so maybe you need to have the the classic hog Harley made in America and have it be heavy and expensive and loud Uh, and maybe you need a a sub brand
1: yeah the kind of I mean you wouldn't call it this but the kind of Harvey Junior or Harley light I mean, but you're right, it is about taking that core essence of this is a Harley and this works across both of those groups. And both of those groups can coexist. They don't have to be at loggerheads, they don't have to be opposed to each other. If they all enter this spirit of freedom, community, then all of that advertising, all of that collateral, all of that heritage can still go with it. And both sides should be happy with that.
0: Hopefully. That covers sort of a demographic segmentation and a psychographic one, so they're still preserving the same psychographic profile. But there's maybe another angle we can bring here. So uh, another way of segmenting people is geographically. Where are the people? What we talked about so far has been very USA-centric. This is how Harley is seen in America. And Harley has been spending a lot of time and energy trying to expand to the rest of the world. But... People in India and Europe and Asia don't necessarily understand American politics in the same sense that Harley would understand it and don't see Harley as having the same iconic meaning in in quite the same way. So maybe you would need to alter that or change that a little bit to maintain that same freedom, core demo benefit, but translate that for different cultures in ways that apply there. And so you may have to have some geographic segmentation to alter how the positioning is carried out.
1: Brands quite often do that. So you quite often find a brand that is represented in its home country in one way and might be completely different externally. So if you look at Aldi, for instance, one of the grocery shops that we have in the UK, they started off in Germany. And in Germany, they're not seen as a discount low price store. That was never their positioning. But when they moved into the UK and indeed when they moved into other countries in Europe, that was the position they took because that was where the gap in the market was. So Aldi and Lidl's position in the UK is actually quite different to the position that they have back in their home territory of Germany. And that geographical positioning and geographical segmentation can be quite effective. I mean, Aldi have done it brilliantly. So if Harley can be the hog, if you like back in the usa and to some extent in the uk because we have a a lot of influence from that culture but they could be a completely reinvented brand outside of that so you're right in the middle east the far east etc they could do that green element traveling but again it's about the traveling and the companionship and the traveling and the community yeah it doesn't have to have the rest of that baggage
0: apparently even coke is brewed a little bit differently in every country they have the same overall meaning, but they, they tweak it a little bit in each area. So we've got demographics, psychographics, geography. Another way to try and do it is to look at usage and benefits. Sought. So are people using it a lot? Are they using it a little bit? For example, in the UK, there's a, a chain of shops called Cotswold. And there's, in the US, the equivalent is called REI. In Canada, it's MEC, Mountain Equipment Co-op. These shops sell outdoor hiking, camping equipment. They probably have some broad demographic things in mind. It probably skews a little more male and probably a little younger, but quite a wide range of demographic people who, who really like hiking and climbing and canoeing and this outdoorsy stuff. So there's an outdoorsy lifestyle. But if you think about it, they need to convey a, an outdoorsy lifestyle. And so their psychographic image is part of it. And so if you go to their shop, you don't just see racks of with shoes and trousers and shirts. You see big pictures with a mountain and things that you can try your shoe on that look like a rock so that you feel like you're outdoors, right? So they're trying to appeal to people who see themselves as being nature and outdoorsy and enjoying being out in the wilderness. But at the same time, they have to design their product range for people who are going to spend their time outdoors and exercising. So if you're going to have clothes, they need to be ones that are lightweight so that you can pack them in a backpack and that will wick sweat away. And their clothes have to have this performance element, or at least claim to have this performance element in a way that separates them from similar clothes that have been sold at Gap or some other shop. So there is elements of lifestyle, but there's elements of what do people want to use your product for? and how do they want to use it and can you change the way your product performs so that it suits the way people use it for different groups of people use it differently
1: yeah and, that, and that's about nailing your core benefits and understanding it and then understanding how people use your product so you're right for the likes of cotswolds it is about people that are serious about the outdoors not just people that go for an amble on a sunday afternoon month and month but people that generally go out there and they're almost professional usage or they want that kind of professional standard. The tricky bit for me with that kind of segmentation is how you actually get at them. So, you know, it's easy to say, well, we can market this to young men age 18 to 24. That's a demographic that's quite easy to hit. But finding a group of people by their attitude or their hobbies or their other things, that's a a bit more nuanced. As a marketer, it's a a more tricky job. Well, I think
0: it's a job where if you just say, I've invented a shirt and I want to aim it at hikers, what the hikers want, that's quite difficult. I think a lot of brands which have this kind of segmentation start off in a specialized community so if you look at these like Cotswolds or, or mech shops they're often started by hiking enthusiasts or outdoor enthusiasts who say look these products on the market they don't work for me because I want A and B and C and this is not available and so they'll they'll build something that works for them but whether or not you start from there if you want to do a usage segmentation, that's what you need to do. You need to sit down and spend a lot of time talking to the people who use your product in some distinctive way and really get into how they use it and what they need from it. And that can be true when you're designing a pair of trousers. It can be true when you're designing a programming language. So if you're building a programming language and it's going to be for data science people, that's really different than what a people who are building web applications might need, right? So the people who are trying to build web applications or uh, data frame applications, they want something that's optimized to run as fast as possible and with the most efficiency as possible. Whereas if you're building something for people who do data science and computer analysis, fast is good, but what they're really interested in is something that they can learn fairly easily and that they can read easily and that they can understand easily and that will do the sorts of things they need to do in data science. So data science people end up using program languages uh, such as Python, which are fairly easy to read. There are lots of libraries doing what they need to do with it. Whereas people who are building really serious high-end computer programs will use things like C Sharp, which run much faster, even if it takes a a lot more specialized knowledge and, and training to be able to actually program it.
1: Okay, so let's just have a think then about all the different options that we've covered. So, we've talked about segmenting people by their demographics, so that kind of age, gender, all that kind of stuff. It's the kind of stuff that a lot of brands do as a default because it's easy. And we've talked about geographic stuff because so we had that example of Aldi being something different in the UK to what they are in back in Germany. We talked about psychographic, which is the way that people think and their attitudes. So that kind of Harley segmentation of we're going for the rebel, for the people who are after freedom and community and that kind of stuff. And then we've got things like the way people use the product. So that example of hiking gear from Cotswolds or programming languages with Python being the one that's more usable and easy to learn and so on. So that's, you know, some clear different methods of segmenting the market. But with all those different methods... What's the right way to do it? How does somebody know when they're looking at their product, how they should segment the market? We've just thrown at least four different options at them.
0: Yeah. One of the funny things that happens is you you teach this stuff to a class of students and then you say, "Okay, now go and make a new packaged food product and come up with a marketing plan for it. And they'll, they'll go away and they'll work on it and they'll huddle together and they'll come back and they'll say something like, OK, our, our demographic is people who are in this age group, in this location, with this psychographic and with this usage level and with these benefits. So and you, you sit and scratch your head and say I, that that I, I can see why you did that, because we taught you that there are all these things. So you, you've worked out what their target is on each single one of them. But so it's all of them. It's all of them. And in the real world. Often segmentation is much simpler than that. It's like, you know, we'll have maybe a demographic and a psychographic element, and that'll be it. Or you'll have sort of a usage and a geographic element or a, a benefit sort and a demographic, right, right? So usually you sort of pick a couple of them, but which ones do you pick, on? Uh, you've got this long list and okay, you need to grab a couple. Is there a marketing spinny wheel of segmentation that we can click on and we'll (laughs) randomly choose a segmentation group for 64
1: million dollar question isn't it i think really it's about as a marketer thinking about the one that's going to be useful for you because depending on what your product is and where you sit and what your benefits are some of those segmentations are going to make more sense than others so it might not make any sense to segment people by age if your product's going to appeal to all age groups, but it might make sense to appeal to a certain psychographic, certain attitude. On the other hand, it might not make any sense to appeal to a certain attitude. It might make more sense to appeal to people in a certain location. So if you've just opened a cafe in the centre of Manchester, straight away, your demographic is going to be people that are at least frequently in the centre of Manchester. So you default to a demographic, depending on the nature of your business. But if you're an online retail business, you don't necessarily have the same geographic constrictions. So it's really about deciding what's going to make the most sense to you. So look at those different options of demographic, psychographic, geographic, et cetera, et cetera. Which ones have some relevance for you? And just pick the ones that are relevant. Don't try and do everything. And it might be that you only pick one. It might be that you pick two. Don't try and do everything, though but think about the ones that are appropriate. So from a
0: a more abstract way of thinking about it, if you think about what segmentation is really about, it's about having a group of users who relate to your product in a common way. So either they all use it in the same way or because they're the same age or because they have a certain income profile, then they can all afford it or they can all not afford it. Or they can all not afford something else. So that opens an opportunity for you to sell to them or because of their gender, they're more likely to be interested in it or less likely to be interested in it. So the question on, some, on a more abstract level is, what are the groups of users that will be specifically interested in your product compared to the other products on the market because it's very easy to say like oh well anybody could use socks I'm selling socks anybody could use socks but lots of other people are selling socks too so the question is are there a group of sock users that you can really really impress more than anyone else's and then they can become loyal sock users of your brand
1: okay so now we're straight into the the whole area of positioning I think that's a good topic for Next week. So, when you've defined what your segment is, how do you then differentiate yourself from the rest of the people in that space, from the rest of the competitors? You need to find a group that have got a common way of using your product, interfacing with the product, and interfacing with you. Um, I quite often have an argument with a, a good friend of mine who's always trying to do segmentation, and his boss says, Well, you know, we should have 10 different segments, we should have 10 different user types or pen portraits of users. When in actual fact, there's only three in his industry because any other way that he splits them up, they're not actually different segments. So I always say, well, what makes that customer? What makes a customer in group A different from a customer in group B? And if you can't answer that question, it's not a different segment.
0: Right. So you need groups of people who relate to your products in the same way, but who are different enough from other segments to be meaningful. There's some other criteria, too, you want to think about. So is your segment big enough to be worth it? In Simpsons, the joke was uh, Ned Flanders had his left-handed shop for left-handed people. And it turns out there's just not a lot of left-handed people and they can find left-handed stuff elsewhere. And then there's a few things like scissors where you need a left-handed one. But so, I mean, if you take that silly example seriously, he had a defined segment, right? Left-handed people. and they were differentiated from right-handed people but it just wasn't a big segment with a strong unmet need and this is why it didn't do well.
1: Yeah, not a big segment and also it's really hard to find those people unless you already know them so you know there's no directory of left-handed people, it's not like left-handed people always do the same thing, they're very very different in lots of other respects other than the fact that they're all left-handed. There's not a lot that necessarily binds them together. So it's not like they all use the same public transport or the same route to work or read the same magazine or listen to the same radio programme. So getting access to that group is really difficult because they're not actually coherent as a group Right. other so, than they're left-handed.
0: <laughs> right. So, I mean, if your segment was classic rock fans there are places to find them you can go to classic rock radio Absolutely. stations there are magazines there's, there's a whole bunch of places where even if like i can't look at you and, and there's you know uh, on the street and say ah yes you're a classic rock fan i mean maybe you've got your acdc t-shirt but even without that there are lots of places where those people are going to congregate and find and talk to each other and so as a marketer you can go to those places to communicate and find those people because if you spend your time talking to people who have no interest in your product, I mean, A, a it's annoying to those people, but B, it's a waste of your resources. The stereotype of marketers is, is that we want to spam everyone with endless commercial messages. And it's true we spend a and
1: lot of And that's actually money. the opposite.
0: <laughs> right. It's true that we end up doing that often, but we don't really want to. And in an ideal world as a marketer, you would talk to the people who are interested in your product and nobody else. Nobody else would ever hear about you or have to hear about you um, other than the people who are potentially going to want to buy it. Those are all wasted effort.
1: So if you can't find a way of accessing that group who are going to be interested, then the segment that you've defined isn't actually going to be very useful. It's not going to be very valuable to you. Uh, Yeah, yeah,
0: there was a a teacher I had many years ago who had an example of a, a phone company he worked for who paid something like half a million dollars to some research company to go up and come up with a segmentation of phone users in their American state. And these guys went and they did a bunch of surveys and they did a bunch of interviews and they came back and they said, oh, we've got these six different interviews of the different ways people think about phones and phone technology. And the company said, great, how do we find these people? At which point the, the researchers sort of looked at each other somewhat sheepishly. And so what they ended up doing was scrapping this half a million dollars of research and just saying, okay, well, we can see usage patterns. This, Some people use these phones more heavily, some people use that kind of service more heavily. And we can see, we have some demographic information because we know in different postcodes what the demographic breakdown is. So this area has lots of old people, that area has lots of young people. And so based on those sort of observable you know, age and usage, we can work out some meaningful groups of people who relate to phone services in, in, in different ways. And, and that's how they ended up doing it. And, and it's not that the ph- psychographic segmentation was wrong. It's just that they couldn't find those people efficiently.
1: That goes back to the, the first point we made about finding a group of people that have got a commonality about them, but also they're accessible. You can actually get at them. You can market to them.
0: Let's just summarize a little bit. People who relate to the products in the same way, uh, you need a group that's big enough that are definable or discernible. They really are different from other people and they're accessible, you can get to them.
1: And really it's also about picking a segment that logically makes sense for you and your product. So, you know, don't think that you have to do all the different methods, pick the ones that are appropriate. Right.
0: In some sense, it kind of goes back to what we said at the beginning of the first podcast ever. It's about knowing who your customers are and could be or want to be, uh, figuring out who, who sort of a group of them are and then working with that. Okay, I think we, we could go on about segment, uh, segmentation all day, um, but I think we might have.
1: <laughs> Four days.
0: <laughs> Four days?
1: yeah we are, well i could do it for days it's one of my favorite topics i could talk for days about segmentation and frequently do <laughs> we could talk about b2b
0: segmentation I, think... I mean yeah, the, the, the happens there too but i, I think
1: absolutely poor long-suffering and the same rules apply absolutely the same rules apply
0: right i mean you have heavy and light users there do you have different age firms that you're selling to how does that work
1: Yeah. So some well-established firms or new firms or growing firms, mature firms, all of that kind of stuff, they all have different needs. Um, So you might segment firms in exactly the same way, but the same rules apply. You know that, okay, we call it firmographics rather than demographics, but the attitudes are still the same. The supplying that unmet need is still the same. Finding a segment that's discernible or discreet, finding a segment that you can access. That's all the same rules. And again, Finding a segment that makes sense for what you're doing.
0: And with firms, you can even do it by industry. So if you're, you know, selling something to chemical companies, they probably behave a little bit differently than car companies than fast fashion clothing companies. There's elements of that too.
1: But but some do, some don't. Depends on on what product you're selling. So if you're selling reams of paper, then probably the segment doesn't matter. But if you're selling machinery, probably the segment matters a lot. So, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be relevant to what you're doing. It's not a, a one-size-fits-all approach. Okay.
0: How about so. we let the good people of the world back on with their lives uh, 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 and say goodbye to them until next week?
1: <laughs> yep, let's wrap up there, okay? I will see you next week. Until then. Take care, Take Alex. Care. Bye. Bye, everybody.